0: a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of a changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November nineteenth, two 2013. This is episode 1251 of the Survival Podcast. It's kind of a follow-up from last week. Last week on Tuesday, I did a show called Food Forestry and how it actually works. And this week, I'm doing a show that's a direct response to that show. Uh, at the end of that show, I asked you guys to send me your questions on food forestry. I haven't read them all. I have a whole bunch of them stuffed in a folder. I'll be going through them in real time here, and I'm going to try to move a little bit quick so I can answer as many of them as I can and I'll start out with some basic guidelines that I think people really need to understand because uh, it will make a lot of these questions just not so complicated, I guess, is a way to look at it. Before I get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is uh, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I'm a big believer that we should put drugs into our body only when it's a last resort. Um, if we are truly in pain or we're going to die of some sort of an illness or something like that, uh, there are times for modern medicine. When it comes to dealing with chronic conditions, though, and preventing illness, um, I take a lot of solace in the herbs that are available to us throughout the world. And I believe that everything that we need is, is pretty much out there and yet to be discovered. I think even... On the level of some of the things that we rely on pharmaceuticals now for, if enough research were done that if it's curable, there's probably something in nature that can cure it. And we're not all the way there yet, but when it comes to gentle treatments, tonifying effects on the body, and dealing with mild uh, impediments and avoiding the use of pharmaceuticals by doing so, uh, I I rely on herbs, and I think you should at least consider it. And I think you should check out westernbotanicals.com. And I'll tell you why they're real people that really care about you. If you pick up the phone and call them, they will help you out, help you figure out what you need. Um, we did have one recent complaint about them, and I took care of it. Uh, I talked to the uh, owner, and he he did a good job of retraining his staff. But I want to explain where the confusion might come. The person that called in said uh, that Jack Spearco said if you call in, well, you can give me a recommendation. Tell me what I need. And you, the, you know, the government is so on this crap that. The provider of herbals can only basically tell you what's worked for other people. They'll help you, but just understand that it's not like calling up the doctor and go, My back hurts, what what pill should I take? Uh that'll make you know, maybe dealing with not just Western Botanicals, but any herbal uh company a little bit easier. And understand it's the government. Understand this is how this works. So a cherry is a piece of food. Okay? Cherry's food. There's it's not regulated as a drug. But if I cite a specific report that says ch- cherries help to prevent cancer and I sell you a cherry at the same time, the Food and Drug Administration says that cherry now become a drug because our government is nuts. So please understand why anybody, including Western Botanicals, might couch things a little bit with, well, this has been shown to work for others or some of our customers. That's why, because your government is stupid. That's why. Anyway, Western Botanicals is awesome. Everything they have is either organically grown or wild-crafted. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Moving on to a totally different type of sponsor. Hey, have you ever thought about making your own knife? You know, getting your own handle material and making it something really unique and custom? Hey, check out knifekits.com for that. If you've never done it before, they have what you need. And there's at least no regulations yet on telling you what you need in a knife kit. So if you call them up and say, what do I need? They'll tell you flat out you need this, this, and that. Um, if you're a master bladesmith, you probably already know Knife Kits is the go-to source. Check them out today, KnifeKits.com. If you want to start making Kydex, they have a lot of material to do that as well. I should say making Kydex sheaths and uh, and things like that because you don't actually make your own Kydex. At least I've never heard of anybody doing that. Anyway, check them out today, KnifeKits.com. Western Botanicals uh, and KnifeKits.com both do discount programs for the member support brigade. Check the benefits section of your MSB if you're a member. To learn more about that. On that note, if you are not yet a member of the Support Brigade, please consider consider joining. It is a great program. It will save you money. Uh, it will definitely save you more money than you spend. If you're buying anything from guns to gardening and stuff and anything in between, the uh, MSB is a profitable membership for you. There's discounts to over 40 vendors in there now, including Western Botanicals and KnifeKits.com. Uh, if you are military law enforcement Peace Corps active duty, to your prior service or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, uh, you also qualify for a discount for your service. Just email me with service discount in the subject line. In one or two sentences, tell me who you are and what you're doing or what you did if you prior service, and I'll get you that discount code back. You need to do that before, not after you join. If you're already a member and you want that discount, we can do it on your renewal. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. All right, so I want to start out with, like I said, a few things that can kind of help people understand something about permaculture in general general and food forestry in general. I need everybody out there that thinks that you live in a place that's special and different and unique and only you have the, the, you know, like everybody else in permaculture that's trying to make a food forest or do anything has it easier than you. That's not the case. If you can look out your window or your door or what have you, or when you drive down the street and you can see trees of some sort growing around you, you live in a place you can grow a food forest. Now, I'm going to say there are some places that are less than ideal or impossible. They would include things like the tundra with permafrost. Unless you do something radical like a two-acre glass house with some heat in it, you're probably not going to create a food forest um, steepness. A lot of people say, well, I've got, my land is very steep. And then you look at a picture of it and their land's like, not really that steep. But if you have a cliff, if you have a cliff face, right, you know, yeah, there are places and and, and if you live or you live in the middle of a desert and not edge desert, but like just like desolate desert, you could probably pull that off but it's going to take an awful lot of work and some specialization and some irrigation and things like that. Um, if you live in a place where the ground has been salted to death or so, uh, there are places. And if you're in one of those places, the only thing I can tell you is get a new piece of land to work with. right? And so that's the those are the exceptions or, you know, put in a glass house and, you know, or a shade house or something. And I mean, there's there's places where that's the case. It, it's probably not, you know, 99 percent of you guys. For every single one of you that emails me and goes, I'm in a really cold climate, somebody else is emailing me, wishing they lived where you did, telling me how hot their climate is. For every person that says my climate's dry, somebody's emailing me about how wet their climate is. Just it, 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 it's a, a constant thing that we as individuals believe that our situation is unique. If you email me and say you're in a dry climate, I'm going to say plant species that do well in dry climates. If you email me and say you're in a wet climate, I'm going to say, great, what's your problem? Okay, I mean, that's that's really what it all comes down to. Um, if you email me and say, well, I'm in a climate where if I put in swales, it'll be so boggy, it'll be like quicksand. I'm going to tell you, then you don't need swales. And you still might. It all depends. Right? But the, the, the problems that people think they have are not as bad as they, as they, they seem to believe that they are. And the problem is off also the solution. And then here's... The fundamental thing about food forestry that'll let everybody, I don't know, whenever people are uptight about something like this, I always think back to one of my favorite authors that has nothing to do with permaculture at all. His name is Charlie Papazian, and he's written a lot of great books on home brewing, wine and mead making, and beer making. And what he always says is when you're getting stressed out over, like, will this recipe work, or did I get the hops right, or is I, did I sanitize it, relax, don't worry, have a home brew. All right? And I, I kind of feel like sometimes people just, like, when you're, When you're trying to figure out what you plant where, you know, and if you don't drink adult beverages, have a root beer, sit back, kick back, look at the sun, feel the breeze on your neck, pop your feet up, have a root beer, and just go with it. And things will get a lot easier. Because the truth is that a food forest is both dramatically simple and dramatically complex at the same time. The good news is nature does the complex part, we do the simple part. It's complex because when you put together an area with 50 or 100 different species in it, then you have thousands of potential interrelationships. Because right? A can interact with B, and A can interact with C, and A can interact with D, but A can also interact with B, C, and D. All right, and, and you don't have to know that other than you understand the principle. And diversity in there will make that happen. And you don't know which ones will react with what and some will be very positive interactions and some not so positive. And that's okay. Well, what if I plant this and it dies? Good. Plant another tree where it died. Those will be a great big root system there. It'll be all ready to go, and it'll have a fast carbon pathway, and something else might do well there. Well, what if I plant this and it doesn't do very well? Cut it down and plant something else. Or figure out what's wrong. Or don't worry about it. You plant enough stuff, a few things die, it's no big deal. So that that concept has to be understood. Um, The next thing to understand is really how simple this can be. I'm going to give you six steps to establish a food forest that are going to be the same no matter where you're at, as long as you're not on a cliff face or on a salt flat or in the tundra. All right, Any other place, this is going to be what you do. Number one, plan for sufficient irrigation or drought proofing to get it off the ground. Generally, most food forests will not need any irrigation at all once established. The reason we know that is most forests don't need any irrigation. They do just fine. You might want to provide some supplemental irrigation here and there at the driest time of the year, or you need to put in drought proofing like swales and other earthworks that provide for hydration of the soil. And understand, swales generally take about five years to fully rehydrate a system, so a lot of times you may want to irrigate a system in the first few years as you're establishing it, all right? But one way or another, make sure there's enough moisture there for things to grow. That's just one. Number two, include plantings for the seven layers of the system. We're going to focus on trees, but we're also going to make sure there's, there's herbaceous and rhizomial and climbers and all that other stuff. Again, if you go back and listen to 1246, the show on food forestry and how it works, there's a link in to today's show notes. I go through all that, so I'm not going to do it again, but plant all the layers into the ecosystem. You're planting an ecosystem, not trees. Okay? Number three, provide diversity. So, for instance, if you're going to put seven apples into a food forest... Maybe ten, maybe twenty, I don't care, but if you're gonna do seven, plant seven different types of apples. Right? So I'm gonna do seven apple trees, I'm gonna do seven apple cultivars. Right? If I if I planted twenty apples, I might do ten, two of each. I might do twenty. It all depends on what does well in my area and what I can get my hands on. But make sure there's diversity in the system. And you want to plant other trees. So if we're going to do an apple-based forest, I want to plant plums and peaches and cherries and persimmons and whatever works. I never want to plant just apples or just pears or just plums. Now, if I'm doing a really small, scale down urban forest, I might plant two or three different trees, and that will be my main overstory, and that's it. Right. But I want diversity in there. If you get the diversity, you get the A interacts with B, A interacts with C, C interacts with A. D interacts with B, Z interacts with Y, Y interacts with B, right? You get all that as long as the diversity is there. So make sure you're putting a diverse planting in of things that grow decent to well in your area. I don't care where you are. There's things that grow that produce food in your area. Focus the core on those, all right? Focus on what you can grow, step four, not what you can't grow, I get emails all the time, oh, I want to grow cherries, but I live in the South and you don't grow cherries. There's some low chill stuff. I'm going to do it here. That's probably marginal for me, but it'll probably work with the diversity stacked into it. But if I lived in Houston, I'd probably just forego cherries, right? And if you're in Houston, oh, I want to grow cherries. Every person in the north is wishing they could pull off some of the citrus you can pull off in Houston. Every person everywhere that's looking somewhere else understands someone that lives there wishes they could grow what you can grow. So focus on what you can grow. Ask questions like, what's grown commercially here? And what is an analog to that? If apricots are, apricots are grown somewhere, it's likely that peaches will do well. Okay, It's likely that plums will do well, wherever an apricot will grow. They're similar in their requirements and needs. So... Focus on what is grown in your area. And you might think there's no commercial fruiting, orchards, nuts, anything grown in your area. But if you start looking and go into like your agricultural extension information and stuff, you'll find out that almost everywhere in this country, there's some sort of commercial crops being grown. Now, again, if you live in the middle of a desert, not edge scrub desert, like freaking desert. Like when you look out, you don't see, I am not a miracle worker. You could probably make that work, but you're going to have to irrigate. You need to really think about what you're planting there. But for most of you, you don't have it that hard. You really don't. Okay, next, step five, including a lot of, include a lot of support trees. These are your leguminous, fast-growing, bioaccumulating trees that put nitrogen in the soil and accumulate biomass. Seven-to-one to, to nine-to-one ratio. If you want to do three-to-one, go ahead. You don't have to go to the extreme, but you'll get better results if you do. All right? So include lots of support trees and chop and drop them heavily through the first five years of establishment. By the end of the fifth year, you should have killed most of your support trees. If you started out with 300 support trees, maybe you have 10 to 20 left at most. They're dead. Or they're they're very disadvantaged now. You've constantly chopped and dropped them down to about your, your waist to chest high and your main trees are now way up over them and shading them out. And and they're going to just kind of limp along and continue to accumulate biomass. And you have a few that you let canopy out with your systems. There should be some support trees in the end. It's okay to have some trees that don't. But make sure you plant more support trees than your your long-term productive trees. And chop and drop them. And really focus on paying attention to that process for about five years of establishment of a forest. And always chop and drop when rainfall exceeds evaporation. In other words, in the wet time of year. In our climate, the best time for this would be going into fall, when the rains come in from the fall and it's cooler out, and the trees can hang, because now you're, in the beginning, your your productive trees are getting a lot of shade from a lot of your support trees, which grow faster than them. Even if you plant your support trees some seed, which will do, a lot of times that seed will get up and get 10 feet tall in, in a year or two. And your little apple tree might only be at that point six to eight feet tall. That shade is protecting those fruit trees as they develop and get stronger. So chop and drop in the wet season. Not in the dry season. Okay? But lots of sports trees chop and drop. Then let nature do the rest. About five years into it, there's very little maintenance at all. You have a few support trees that are still hanging on that need that chop and drop or need to be... You go in and just just take a chainsaw and take them to the ground. Throw them down. Let, let the fungus take over. Or start using them as fuel wood or fence post wood or tool wood or things like that. And you're good. That's it. It is that simple. With that in mind, let's start taking some of your questions. Um, even though I guess in some ways I just answered them all. But I really didn't. And I'm going to uh, do my best here. To get kinda specific with some of these. Start with the first one, and, and I'm gonna try to help by telling you all the things that I don't really need to know. Um, Jack, I have a quarter-acre suburban plot with a rectangular backyard. That's very pertinent information to a question of what do I do. It's 130 by 70 with the long end running north to south. That's kind of important. One way or another, I'm going to work with whatever I have, but that's kind of important. I have some raised beds in the very back and would like to create a food forest while leaving some open space for lawn activities and integrate a pond. Okay, that's sort of kind of important, but in an email, it's really not because I'm not going to give you a flat-out design in an email. Um, I have a, I have the lawn drawn up in CAD software, but I don't have contours measured. Measure your contours. That, see, that's, that's actually important. Uh, what would some of the first steps be in designing this suburban system? See, at that point, what you've told me is you haven't taken enough time and effort to learn enough about food forestry to know the answer to that, which would be, one, would be determine what your solar aspect is, which later he says he didn't do so i have it i haven't figured out the sun the good news is your yard points south the sun's at your backyard okay so we so that's it's actually laid out very very well but you haven't figured out your contours you don't know what the first steps of a food forest are and you haven't determined your solar aspect ratios so your first steps would be determine your contours and determine your solar aspect so the two things that are said you didn't do right Okay, I will likely have someone locally create a design and then learn why they made those design choices. Okay, that's fine, but I don't need to know that. Tracking the sun is something I haven't done. I should have been doing since I lived here for over a year now. The good news is you can go get a, a an app called Sun Tracker or Sun Seeker. Go get Sun Seeker. I think it's a dollar ninety nine on iTunes or Android, and it will show you where your sun is any day of the year that you want to know. You want to look at where it is June twenty first, December twenty first. Um, and you want to look at where it is about midway between those points. So uh, September uh, 21st and uh, March March 20th, I think, are the, your, your equinoxes. Look at it there, and then look at it somewhere midpoint of those. And that'll tell you everything. You just look where the sun is going to go, and, and you can look with your eyes and see what's going to be shaded and what's not. The good news is it's not that important. It's really not, unless you're completely shaded out, which you're not, not that important. And with a south-facing backyard, You've got more sun than you'll ever need, okay, throughout the year. Um, uh, she didn't look for, My neighbors have fairly large trees that shade the edges at dawn and dusk. Doesn't matter. Dawn and dusk means that you're open throughout the majority of the day, means absolutely nothing. Attaches a JPEG of my model. I'm not soliciting a design, just giving you something to look at. Uh, the deck is light brown, and all the trees are shade trees, unless noted. Brown border is uh, all mulch laid by me. Get rid of the grass. Thanks for the information. Evan in Texas. Okay, so I'm, I sound like I'm picking on, on Evan, but I'm really not. Now, here's here's a, little, a classic example of someone I actually cannot help with a question like this for a show. Other than what I've already said. Find your contours. Determine your solar aspect. and And, and learn a little bit about how to do this. Because what you're asking me to do, you're, you're emailing me and say, I, I want to change the tire on my car, but I don't know what a lug wrench is or a jack. And I, I don't mean to pick on the first person, but that's kind of the truth here. Uh, he's gone through all this trouble to lay out this great CAD drawing that I'm looking at right now that gives me a lot of information, but he hasn't gone through the trouble to figure out the basic things that he needs to do. Now, to try to help Evan... Um, He's got these raised beds way in the back part of the yard where he wants to put the food forest in. Um, it's about a 70-foot strip, but I would say that it's probably, it's got a big shed that takes up 10% of the total area. Um, it's got a pecan tree right next to the garden. That's kind of a terrible idea. Um, your raised bed gardens should not be next to pecan tree. Pecan trees are somewhat allopathic and uh, will probably cause problems with your garden long term. Personally, what I would do if this was my design, I'm trying to describe what I'm seeing to you. Long strip of land, house at the north, back fence at the south, rectangular facing south. I would move the raised beds further closer up to the house. I would push the raised beds way up by the house so I don't have to worry about shading them out at all with the food forest. And I would probably take about the bottom one-third of the property and I would put that into food forest. I would consider putting swales in here, but I don't know. I don't know how I would do it or if I would do it because I don't know the slope of the land at all because you haven't figured that out yet. So... That's just an example, and I know that's not the most helpful thing I could lead off with, but when I, when I try to keep saying the same things over and over again, I want you guys to understand why. What you've given me is none of the information that I need to actually help you, um, which would be primarily what is the contour of the land, because I'm going to earthwork the design and I'm going to plant into the earthworks. Um, including just guessing. I mean, you can look at your land, and if it's got a decent slope, it's very flat land is hard to just look at and go, oh, it's kind of this way. It'll fool the hell out of you. If it's got any kind of a decent slope, you can kind of draw them in, and, and then you know what to do. Um, but on the the size acre, one-quarter acre, what I would actually be doing it would be nothing like these mainstream food forests that are out on like an acre or more. I would I wouldn't be trying to do that. I would go in there and intensively plant plants very, very close together, plant what you like, plant what grows in Texas, use the list that I provided, that I'm planting as a basis for some of what you're planting in the last show I read the whole list off, and prune up to head height. I'm talking about your fruit trees. You don't need a lot of support species, a couple of mimosa trees interplanted with that, and design it to be aesthetically pleasing. But if you're going to have that pecan, there's nothing wrong with that, but I wouldn't want it right next to your gardens, and I wouldn't want my garden all the way 120 feet away from my back door. I'd want to move those raised beds up toward the house and make that more of a a zone one uh, managed uh, area. So I know that's not maybe the best one I could have let off with, but it's just the first one um, that, that came up. Next one, Kevin says... How do you deal with land that slopes east or west and not south? Ideally, I'd like to plant my trees along swales, but my swales run east and west. Should I make little U-shaped swales around each tree? I think Guy's Garden shows something like that. Thanks. I look forward to the Q&A show. Okay. You, you make your swales the only place they can go if you're putting swales in a system. Now, what Kevin hasn't told me is how large this system is. Right. So I don't know if I'm talking about 10 acres or a quarter of an acre here. Um, or less. Now, these little U-shaped swales around individually planted trees, we call those boomerangs. And they're mainly used in small suburban design systems. Uh, which you can do them with something called net and pan, which is basically where we make little diversion drain ditches, little bitty ditches, that actually go with the slope of the land and then go into like a little reservoir. So if you think of like design a net, like a triangle or diamond-shaped net, and at each point the diamond intersects. And you can look up net and pan design on Google to see this. At each point is where you plant a tree and you put these little boomerangs in. That's probably what you saw in Gaia's Garden. Um, But here's the thing. Your land slopes east or west and not south. I don't care. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yes, it's great. If your land slopes due south and you can put your swales in and you can edge out from the swale and your tallest trees are in the back and your shortest stuff's in the front, that's fine. That's wonderful. That's like, that's like you were just served it up on a plate. And I guarantee you somebody with that is going to tell me it's a problem. Okay. But if your land slopes east, right, then you know your sun rises in the east and sets in the west. So you would plant your tallest trees to the west side, because the the lower trees are going to pick the sun up all day long, come over and take the west side. If if your shorter trees were trees that needed a rest from the midday heat, if you were planting something like you were trying to get a little edgy and a marginal area and go into like figs and pomegranates and olives, you'd plant your taller trees to the east. And you'd plant your shorter trees to the west so that they got hit with that late-day intense sun to warm the ground to get them through these, these other times. Okay? Um, it's just not that complicated. And if it slopes to the west, you'd just kind of flip it. And it depends on how much it slopes. Most people say, well, it slopes this way or it slopes that way. It's not like it's a hillside. Right? Where, you, where it actually is completely shaded out either in the morning or the afternoon. And even if it is, if you go out and look at mountains, you see trees on the west banks and the east banks. They're just microclimates. They're different. If you have a slope, a severe eastern slope, and you are in a, a cool climate, it's going to be cooler than a western slope by a, a great deal. And that means you can... Maybe do things that need a little more chill, and You need to go a little more frost tolerance. If you are in a southern climate and you have that same situation, uh, an eastern slope that's severe enough that it gets really heavily shaded, not by other trees but by the landform itself and goes into a shadow, now you can push things that maybe would be hard to grow, that normally would be grown a little bit further north. So it's all about harvesting whatever that energy is And then planting to it. So if you have a place that's going to be cooler or hotter, then you can edge out toward the more heat tolerant or cold expecting species. But you don't really need to sweat this. And you put your, you always put your swales on contour because it's the only place they can go and then design in. And there would be nothing wrong with this. Let's say you had a relatively small piece of land and you put in a swale and it runs from east to west. It runs, it runs from north to south. Okay? It runs north to south uh, because your land is sloping east or west. Doesn't matter. So you have a southern exposure. So take the swale and plant along the swale your taller trees to the north and scale it down as you come forward your smaller trees to the south. And then understand this in the end, it's not that big a deal. Because if you were to get up and you look at forest where there's rolling hills, and you got up in a helicopter and you got up to where the top of the canopy is, the top of the canopy doesn't follow the land contour. The trees all end up at the same height on the top. They'll all, they'll all equalize over time. Unless you're planting truly dwarfing species that are not going to get up, eventually your canopy will, will become a common canopy. And next time you're driving by a field with trees out in it, right? that's kind of forested back in, look at the tops of the trees. You'll see they're all almost about the same height. So it's not that not that complicated, Kevin. Um, and next one I'm going to pause for a second because it says several questions. I'll keep them short. It doesn't look like they're short. This is a very interesting question, and it's a totally different angle. So I'm going to try to do what I can with it. So let's start with the first part. Um, I would consider the creation of a food forest to be part of my life's legacy, in, in it's, in theory, a permanent system that can produce well beyond my generation. In a system with that kind of longevity, it will likely face challenges I won't be around to manage. What can be done to protect it from future problems? I'll give some examples. The forests around my property have transitioned into farms and now townhouses. The city gets far more in taxes for 100-plus lots of a tenth of an acre than they do for my little 11-acre lot. They also have a track record of some zoning shenanigans to pressure people out of farm lots like mine by making them too costly to hold on to. They would not define the property as a, quote, farm, end quote, and that could spell the end for this forest. Short of establishing the perimeter as a series of burial lots, what can I do to make it less desirable for the municipality to interfere with and more desirable for the community? Let's start there. Okay. So the first problem you're saying you have, dun-dun-dun, is government. Okay. Now, let's talk about whether or not the city considers what you're doing a farm. Unless they have specific zoning that prevents you from qualifying it as a farm, that they don't get to decide that. Okay. If they do have zoning, like if you're inside city limits and they say no agricultural land in the city limits, you've got a problem. If they don't have that then a forest can absolutely, 100%, be defined as a farm and be zoned agricultural land with agricultural exemption. And if you can do that and you really are interested in the longevity and you're not wanting to sell this place five years from now, you may want to really consider getting that done. Okay. The next thing I would say, one of the biggest things that you can have to your benefit in defending a property with ownership is to actually own it. To not have a mortgage, so if you can get the land paid off, I think that gives you a lot more resource to work with. Now, here's the basic concept that you need to understand. Government, especially in a city or a town, is truly a government of the people. It is one of the most accountable forms of government if people give a shit enough to do something about it. It is very difficult to get rid of even a, a, a United States Senator or United States uh, House of, uh, United States Representative in the House. That's a very big, big deal to get done. Getting rid in a, a, a town of 100,000 or so people, getting rid of a mayor or a town council member is actually really, really easy to do. People defend what they value. So your answer is in your question. What can I do to make it less desirable for a municipality to interfere with and more desirable for the community? You make it more desirable for the community. You make it something beautiful and valuable. I would build this thing as fast as humanly possible. I would, As fast as humanly possible. I would make it as gorgeous and beautiful and the legacy you want it to be. And I would immediately be reaching out to like school teachers in the second, third, fourth grade level. Bring your children here for a field trip. Bring your children here to see how this works, to learn how this works. Make it an integrated part of the community. I would get involved on if you, if this is what you're really concerned with. I would get involved on beautifying the community. I would get. I mean, I can't do it because I, I can't tolerate government people at all. I, I mean, I would end up punching somebody in the face in the first week. I really would. But if that's if that's really where you want to go with this, then I would start doing things like park beautification project, and it doesn't have to be all permaculturist. I would start with, can we plant one or two fruit trees in the park? I'll pay for it, right? And I would start getting known as the guy that is beautifying this town, this community. I would start an an evangelical-style movement to get fruit and nut trees planted throughout the neighborhoods. And I would be the example of what that can really be. If you want to protect your little 11-acre lot from your own local government, Make the people of the community look at you as something that needs to be preserved. So that's that's what I would say. Um, in the likely event that it goes unmanaged for a prolonged period, what can be done to keep one or two species from dominating and choking out the rest of the species? In a well-planted, diverse forest, it won't happen. It won't happen. It'll never happen. It'll never occur. Now, can it happen in the first few years of establishment if it's not managed? No. I mean, or yeah. Can it, once you have it up in a st- 10 years true diversity it'll never get dominated by one planting even with just a little bit of maintenance um, I understand this is a living system it will change over time and change dramatically in a multi-generational time frame I'm considering but I would want to slow that change and preserve it in its most productive state for as long as possible any thoughts on how to accomplish this humans are part of natural systems Okay, this is the big lie. You're not going to plant this and have it be completely stable with no human action whatsoever. So, here's what I would say. If you don't have heirs interested in maintaining this property after you're gone, find somebody who would be and leave it to them. If if what you want is that thing maintained, find somebody interested in doing the maintaining. And entrust and, and it to them. You could even do a legal trust around it if you wanted to. Um, if you were designing a property now as an illustration for the 21st century, what considerations would go into the design to ensure good future stewardship of the land and mitigate the need for management? Again, this is a lie. That, that humans are an unnatural part of the planet. We are behaving in an unnatural way. It shouldn't be no human management. I would look to the way that the Native Americans managed the forest before they started dying like flies after we came here from disease and illness. They were not pristine, untouched forests. I wouldn't even think of trying to design it so that it just sits there and does what it does and nobody does anything. I would design it exactly the way that we're supposed to design a forest today. Everything I've already said, I would just do those things. And you have to accept this. We are all we are all mortal beings. The best we can do is establish the most productive, stable, and beautiful systems that we can, and hope that someone will repre- appreciate them after we're gone. That's it. There's no guaranteeing. Uh, this guy's name is Joseph. That your your, your 11 acres will last till the 24th century. But it's a lot more likely to last. If you put all the effort and work into it and see to it that someone gives a damn after you're gone. Okay, Um, next one. This comes from Carl. I understand that nuts and fruits, but what else can a forest produce? More background and variety of food would help. Thank you, Carl. Okay, listen. Um, The main species or the main things that, that trees produce or fruits and nuts. And they really don't produce anything else from a food standpoint. We can produce fuel, though. We can produce fuel wood. We can produce timber. Okay. We can produce consumable products. Like we can use stands of willow to create charcoal for artist charcoal. Or for renewable things from willow, like being able to weave baskets and things like that. We can grow bamboo for building materials. Very renewable, very sustainable. As far as food, though, if you don't want fruits and nuts, then you've got to move into other things. And again, you have to start understanding this whole concept of seven layers in a forest. So the trees are but one, actually two layers, canopy and subcanopy. The other layers include a rhizomal layer. So a rhizomal layer is things like Jerusalem artichokes, sweet potato, regular potatoes. Annuals have a place here. When you're designing this system and you're creating this edge, there will always be some open spaces. And these are great places to grow vegetables. A pepper is an herbaceous plant. It goes in the herbaceous layer. Now, large-scale production of peppers fits much better in with kind of a raised bed, you know, managed profile. But we could do a food forest and on the edge and coming out from the edge Put in a you know more of a raised bed, maybe small hoogle bed thing. So there's no limits to what a forest can produce, but trees produce fruits and nuts. So the answer to what else can I grow? Whatever you want that will grow where you live. And I, my question would be back to you: What do you want to grow? I mean, what is? It? I mean, you're not going to grow cows in a tree, right? So if you want to grow cows, you need to grow pasture. Well, pasture is perfect with food forestry because we build s- strip food forests surrounding paddocks of, of pasture, and we rotate animals through, and the food forest supports the pasture, and the pasture supports the food forest. So if, if you are looking for me to give you just a master list of everything you can grow in a food forest, the answer is everything that grows in your area. And I'm not going to put together a list like that for you. I can't. Um greetings Uncle Jack, this comes from Sarah all capital letters, I want a food forest exclamation point how do I create a guerrilla style food forest on county land you know all you can do then is try planting trees and it's going to be very difficult because you can't go in there and start doing earthworks and terraforming so you have to find the things that will do well uh, and it's it's difficult. Um, I live in an older, mature, established neighborhood in unincorporated county outside of Seattle. My neighborhood is in the forest, with tall, dug firs and cedars on every lot. Great for starting a food forest, but we only have one lot. However, we live up on a ridge on the south slope of a hill running along the north shore of the Cedar River. The river valley is prone to seasonal flooding, so there's a large, protected, and permanently undeveloped tract of forest along the hillside and river. Can't do earthworks or logging. Probably couldn't get away with mob grazing for too long. The undergrowth is dense. Okay, you're asking me how to go out and change land you don't own. I don't do that. I don't do that. You have a small suburban yard. You think that your situation is difficult. And you can grow so many things in Seattle. You can't cut your your neighbor's firs and cedars, but you could cut a few of your own if you chose to. And I would do a standard urban food forest on your piece of property that you own and control and don't tell me it won't work and don't tell me you face north and I don't it doesn't matter are things growing there then they'll grow there Seattle oh my god you if you can't grow food in Seattle you can't grow food cherries alone um, apples will do wonderful pears peaches plums all this stuff will do great you're in a northern climate but it doesn't get that cold Go to the Rain Tree Nursery catalog, Sarah, and just start picking stuff out. Plant intensively managed system on your lot. Um, If you want to grow a a gorilla forest, you probably need a place that's deforested. Um, That would be my best advice. I I would go with the seed grenade instead of the seed ball approach, the seed grenade approach, and find trees that will grow. If I was going to do this, I would find an open area. I would find... Trees that will do well from seed, and I would make seed grenades, which are like a big seed ball with the seeds inside it, and I would be pitching them out there all the time. Gorilla gardening's fine, but the areas that need gorilla gardening are barren and sparse, not heavily forested. OK. Um, uh, Jose says, "Hello, Jack, this is a question for the follow show of episode 1246. We forest how it actually works. My mother has a rental property with a beehive nestled inside the walls. We called the Bee Removal Service that specializes in preserving the bees and have asked them to take the bees to her rural property. She has been building an apiary environment with flowering bushes and plants 50 yards from her house. She does not have a hive box, but the service we have contacted can install one. What would give the bees the best chance of survival in their new home, and what should she look for or ask the beekeeper who is moving them? It is winter, and there is not much flowering vegetation for the bees. This is in Laredo, Texas, which has a very mild winter and very hot the rest of the year. Um, you probably don't have to use. You don't have to do anything. First of all, that's really a question for the guy moving the bees. Um, I'm assuming he is going to probably save some of the comb structure and the honey that the bees have so that they are able to feed themselves off of that. It's a wild swarm. It's probably very, very hardy. There's no guarantee of success. Now, what is a good planting in the Laredo, Texas area to support your bees? A very good support tree would be mesquite. Um, They flower heavily. Bees love it. Uh, Black locust may do okay there as well. Um, But this isn't really a food forest question. This is a bee question. I'm not a bee guy. So my big thing was that's a question for your guy moving the hive. Um, Hi, Jack. I need to learn more about nitrogen-fixing trees and why we don't keep them forever in our food forest. Or do we keep some of them, just a few? I hear you say we plant our big trees directly into the swales. I want to know if the swales eventually fill up with soil. How do we keep our food forest from climaxing? Do we need to start with start any wood core beds in our food forest when starting them? These are my this is my questions. Uh, okay, so Tammy, here's the deal, right? We don't kill all the nitrogen fixing trees. We kill most of them because if I go into a quarter acre and I plant 40 to 50 productive species and 280 to 300 support trees. There's not enough room for all those trees to grow to maturity. And a forest doesn't work that way. A forest has, for every tree that survives, 10 to 20 tried to grow and, and failed. Okay, So we don't keep them all because there's not room for all of them. And we don't keep most of them because, or more of them because we don't really want them as far as a productive tree. We want them as a support tree. So we might start them in a ratio of seven to one or nine to one. And we might end up more like with a ratio of like one to four the other way around. So in the beginning, I might have, in my system, I'll have seven support species for one apple tree. And in the end, I'll have one support tree for maybe an apple, a pear, a plum, a pawpaw, maybe even a cherry. I might be at a five to one reverse ratio. Because at that point, the The deciduous trees your your apples, your pears, your plums, or whatever you're growing has created its own nutrient cycle it's It's now mining the soil it's dropping leaves, and we have nowhere near the need for the number of nitrogen fixtures that we do when we 're establishing a system right so that's that's kind of the why there. The other thing is by killing them we're accelerating secession we're moving more toward the mid secession pre-climax stage faster because instead of this tree having to grow for 10 to 20 years to die we're putting it to the ground over and over again in 5 to 7 years and killing it off okay the other thing that we're doing I'm going to hold that a second um, we do keep some again I hear you say we need to plant big trees directly into swales I want to know if the swales eventually fill up with soil they do get some but you, the swale is designed to establish a forest Right, And the swale will fill in over time, and it will erode over time. But if it only lasted 10 years, and it lasts way longer than that, the trees you've planted have grown so aggressively, and they don't need the swale anymore at that point, the, the swale prevents erosion, creates hydration into the soil, and holds moisture in the system. Trees do the same thing. The swale is doing the work while the trees are too small to do so. Again, we're accelerating. In most of the country, not all, but most of the country, if you did nothing to a piece of land, if you came back in 20 years, it would be forested. Probably not forested the way you want it, but a forest would come. Okay, so when we put in a swale and we put in support trees and we manage that process, we're just accelerating that. So even if the swale did fill in, by the time you have 10, 15, 20-year-old stable forest doesn't matter just like the forest that you see out in a wood lot that nobody manages grows and survives on its own you've now gotten that forest so well established it can do the same thing right so it's not a big deal but there are swales in the desert southwest that are still there that were put in by the civilian conservation corps prior to world war ii and those swales are still there so as far as you're concerned it doesn't matter that the swales will accumulate soil over time it's actually a good thing because if it's going in the swale and building up in the bottom of the swale it's not going off of the land the next thing you're going to ask me is can i go into my swales and harvest that topsoil from time to time and put it somewhere else yes you can do you need to no is it a good idea maybe should i do it it depends i mean that's to you know, is it a small garden swale that you're doing like a mini micro orchard and you can just go in there with a shovel and toss it up on your mound once in a while and, you know, you can get, you know, a shovel full per linear foot of accumulated soil because you have a lot of stuff coming down from upgrade, right? Well, fine. Is it a great big giant swale that's six feet wide and a foot and a half deep in the middle? Don't worry about it. You'll be dead, your kids will be dead, and your grandkids will be dead before that thing fills up, right? Um... The next one, how do we keep our food forest from climaxing? Through management. Through management. And it's okay that it'll climax. Eventually it will climax. Here's where we get, this is where we get complicated, okay? First of all, if you plant this system now, a climax in the system probably is beyond your life expectancy. Somebody else has got to take over at that point, like I said. But even if you're very, very young and you're planting things that grow fast and will go through cycles quickly, there's there's two types of disturbances, natural and designed. A design disturbance or a man-made disturbance may not be designed, but it's but it's by our action, is we drive a really heavy piece of equipment over land and we compact it it's a disturbance. The land will do things in response to that. Or we dig a hole, or we put in a house, or we cut down a tree. All those are disturbances. Natural disturbances are a flood. Natural disturbances are a tree matures, dies, and falls the hell over. Well, if we're planning a system with a seven-layer model, and we've got trees that are occupying the sub-canopy, what happens when one of our mature trees in the climax stage is ready for us to timber it out, or it falls over and dies? The trees that are around it come up and take the space. So it's not really that big of a concern, but... The way we keep a system from fully climaxing is by little bits of management. Going in and harvesting. Going in and pruning when necessary. You know, and we do very minimal things with that at a zone four layer. We have a much more intensive managed food forest if we're at like a zone two style food forest. It's all up to us. We're the designers. We're in control. Uh, do we need to start any wood core beds in our food forest when starting them? Um, you know, it depends. Do you want to? Is all that co- that only comes down to what you want? You know, do you want to do that or not? Is the land set up for? It? Does it make sense? Do you want to do a strip of forest and then a hugel mound and then another strip of forest and plant things that are more of a garden type in your hugels? You can. You can do a whole food forest on hugels if you want to. I mean, there's no reason you couldn't do that if that's what you wanted to do. But here's the reality: you don't have to especially if you're going with a swale-style system with lots of support trees. Remember you, I, I said I would come back to the support trees? Well, here's part of that. So you're asking me, why do we plant so many and why do we kill them? Because we're doing culture. And I talked about this in 1246, but basically think about it this way. You grow a mimosa tree, and after one year it's about a little higher than your head. They'll grow that fast from seed, by the way. So you, you cut it. And next year it sprouts and it grows again and you cut it. And next year it sprouts again and you cut it. And next year it sprouts again and you cut it. And you keep dropping it to the soil. And it keeps growing back. And finally your other trees around it have canopied over it because you're not cutting them back. You're not chop trop- chopping and dropping your apple, your peach, your pear. You're pruning them for structure, but you're letting them go. They're getting up 12, 10, 15 feet, maybe tall, depending on what you're growing. It's all up to you. But that mimosa tree is finally starting to get shaded out. And it starts to get sad and it goes, okay, I've done my job. I've had enough. Screw it. I quit. What's under the ground when that tree quits? A massive root system. Now, multiply that by 100 mimosa trees. And 90 of them in in the fifth to sixth year of the system have gone, I quit. You've built a hugel culture by growing it that's larger than anything you would have ever installed. And that's why I said, I don't know if Jeff Lawton realizes when he says something like hugel culture works good in cold climates, but on the tropics, that many of the things he's doing are forms of hugel culture as we understand it. Remember, hugel culture really means high culture, a high bed. But the wood core component to hugel culture. Is exactly what every food forest Jeff Lawton's built has been built on, whether he realizes it or not. He calls it fast carbon pathways. Right, a weed is a fast carbon pathway, but so is a support tree. A a, a legume tree is a big weed. We cut and we cut and we cut, and it keeps growing back. And people go, "Look at the problem," and we're going, "Look at the solution." It's it's accumulating all this biomass. And all that biomass is becoming part of the nutrient cycle. But in the end, it's created a wood core for the entire forest to grow on. And it's put tremendous amounts of biomass. Not See, now that tree hasn't just put biomass on the surface. It's put biomass below the surface. When we do this properly, this is a hard thing for people to get their heads around. We are building soil both above and below the ground. That's what Google culture does. Those 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 wood cores that break down turn into soil below the surface. Well, when we do it with root structures, we're doing the same thing. And if there's rocks down there and those roots are breaking into the rocks and finding crevices and getting down in there and water's getting in the rocks and then there's erosion in the rocks and then it, the ground freezes in the winter and the rocks separate and dirt gets down in there, the rocks actually start to break down into clay. And now we're actually starting to eat rock. So we're growing soil with the root system. We're growing soil by breaking down bedrock into subsoil, and we're growing it above the soil. That's why this stuff's so powerful, and uh, it's really, really awesome if you start thinking about it this way. Uh, next question from Steve. When planting a new food forest, what size trees should we be purchasing from nurseries? Should they be seedlings, one to two, three to four? Should main trees be bigger or more mature than supporting trees? After looking into the prices for the main trees and all of the supporting species, things get expensive quick, even for a small food forest. Um, they can. They can. Um, but I want you to think about it this way. If you were planting 40 main trees at an average price of $30 a tree, that's $1,200. That sounds expensive, but what is a food forest... With forty support forty main producing trees five years down the road worth what's the roi it's it borders on the insane. there are a lot of things that you have to think about here one, if you can propagate your own trees, do it how big they should should they be um, whatever you can get your hands on and whatever you can afford that's what you work with um, your support trees don't have to be expensive I, I talked about this in the the episode. Uh, that I did, 1246, that this is in response to. But let me give you some examples. Rain Tree, for instance, sells black locust, uh, seedlings. And if you buy 10 or more, they're $2 a piece. So 50 would be 100 bucks. That's a lot of locust trees. That's probably more than I would want to plant. Um, we are going to do a lot of our trees that are support trees are going to be more of a bushy type thing called a Russian olive. You can buy seeds of, you know, 50 seeds of Russian olive for, I think I paid 4 bucks, And it propagates very well from seed. It fixes nitrogen, chop and drop, and it's inedible. An you know, we might let some more of that hang around than some other things. So, you know, just there, you can, you know, 50 bucks worth of locust trees. you got 25 locust trees. Um, one of the best trees for people in the South, and I don't think you're in the South, but if you're in the North, you can probably prop, yeah, you're upstate New York, you can propagate the hell out of your own black locust. I mean, you, you can get seed and just, plant the heck out of that stuff, and I'll talk about people freaking out about locust trees here in just a second, but that that would be one way, uh, but for those of us in the south, find mimosa trees growing on the side of the road, and we just found one, I was going to actually have to ask Nick, because I didn't take enough seed like a dummy when I was out at Nick Ferguson's place in Louisiana, he had a bunch of um, mimosa seeds, and I just didn't take that many, and I should have took more, and I was going to email him say, dude, I can't find any around here, can you get me some? So my wife and I and, and Josiah, we took a walk at this little wildlife preserve that's a couple miles from our house. And we only saw one. But right at the entrance to this pathway on this trail, we took a walk on. There's this huge mimosa tree. And we had to, I had to, like, jump up in the air and grab the branches and pull them down. There was, like, three of us, like one holding it and two picking. We filled the cloth shopping bags that you, uh, that you have, like, to, to take your own groceries in from the store. We filled one of those in about ten minutes with mimosa seed. So there's going to be a bunch of mimosa trees. They're all going to be propagated from seed. There's some mesquite we're propagating from seed. So your support trees can be quite a bit smaller than your main support tree, your main trees. Why? Your main trees are 10, 20 feet apart. Your support species are all in between. There's plenty of sun for them. They grow fast. That's what they do. It's okay. So one of the big ways you can keep your, your cost down is to propagate your, your support trees or go with seedlings. And then you know your your streets, Yeah, buy the most healthy and biggest trees you can afford, and try to find stuff. Especially if you're going zone four big forestry, try to st- find stuff on full size rootstock if you can. You can't always do it, and a lot of the stuff I'm gonna have to plant here is gonna have to be for the species I want and things like that on grafted rootstock. Um, ideally, if, on a lot. If when you know, okay, when we do perma ethos. There'll be a certain amount of stuff that goes in like right away by buying stuff, but what we're going to build in the infrastructure is the way a way that we can pr- we can do our own. You know, where we can grow our own our own scion wood and our own rootstock and do our own grafting and things like that and propagate from seed like crazy. And don't be afraid to get creative, man, you know? Do you want to pop a couple apples open and and plant some seeds to see what happens? Go ahead and go for it. You never know what you're going to get, but sometimes you get something really cool. And, uh, I mean, you think that that can't be done, but I know for a fact they, they pick up apples all the time down in Australia when they see, like, trees growing on the side of the road and stuff like that where they've grown, you know, naturally, and they propagate from seed, and they get fairly good results. Peaches can be propagated from seed and actually do very well. And, I mean, Paul Wheaton is of the opinion that you should be planting almost every tree you do from seed. I don't go that far, but I'll tell you what, there's a real advantage to it. Um, but definitely your support species. You can largely do with seeds or seedlings. And, you know, check with like local conservation offices and Department of Resources and things like that. You'll, you'll find the great deal of the, uh, the, the states have programs where you can get like a hundred seedlings for like 10 bucks or something like that. Now, let me tell you something about those hundred seedlings. They'll fit in a coffee cup. They're not like the seedlings you're going to get, like one-foot-tall seedlings you're going to get of locust trees from Rain Tree. They are little bitty, and a lot of them will die. But at that price, you can afford for them to die. You might not find a lot of really good support species for that, but if you can find them, hey, you know, buy four times what you need. In every place you're going to plant one, plant four. One will probably live. Um, So that's a way to keep it down. If you're going to do it in an urban environment, Remember that you don't have to skin the cat all at once. You might plant as many trees and bushes in an area uh, of, a, of a, you know, a tenth of an acre as I might on three quarters of an acre because you're going to get all that diversity crammed in there and keep them pruned down more. But you don't have to do it all at once. So phase things in. The other thing is on a small urban lot, where you're doing a much more intensively managed system, where you're going to sheet mulch, you're going to bring in mulch, you're going to go out and find bags of leaves every fall and bring it in and mulch the hell out of it, and you're going to irrigate. You are going you don't need anywhere near the support species. Uh, you don't need anything. Cl- you can start with the four-to-one reverse, and that would be more than enough. And the more you're going to manage the system with mulch and 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 working on it and developing it the less you need those support species you just when i do my urban showcase three main swales in it i will not do a seven to one planting there won't be seven mosa trees for one um pomegranate there'll be one here one there one here one there I'll be like four in the whole thing so understand that, like, these things, these high ratios that you're hearing are for establishing large ecosystems, not necessarily small ecosystems. Um, <laughs> great question next. Uh, Lori says, how do you determine how many support trees to plant? How do you grow grapes in a tree? Do they get tr- pruned like traditionally grown grapes? Uh, let's start with how do you determine how many to plant? I kind of just covered that, but the reality is this. What will fit? And what has been proven to work? So Jeff Lawton says 9 to 1. I look at my piece of land and go, I don't think I need that much. So I, I drop it to 7 to 1, which I still think is, I think I'm barring on the insane for my climate. Remember, they're in the tropics. Things rot much faster. Soils are much more fragile. But there's a, there's a, a beautiful nursery that somebody posted a link to a, a video about. I'll try to put, put a link in today's show notes up in uh, British Columbia. And here's what they did. They planted a tree, okay, then a nitrogen fixing tree, then another tree, then another nitrogen. They went one to one right at the beginning and they didn't kill them. They, they keep their nitrogen fixers and they do it like this. Let's say pear, nitrogen fixer, apple, nitrogen fixer, cherry, nitrogen fixer, um, plum, nitrogen fixer, so that an insect that lands in an apple, and actually he's looking for apples, and he's really kind of likes the one he's found. He's found this Achmed's kernel apple, right? And he's, he's like, okay, this is what I'm looking for. And he does his damage, and he's like, okay, on to the next tree. There's a nitrogen fixer here. There's a nitrogen fixer there. If I skip that, now I'm on a pear. I don't, I don't do pears. I don't know what to do. He's confused. And if he finally gets to another apple... You know, he's on a totally different cultivar that's in a totally different kind of state. And and so it can be, it's really, again, down to it depends and what do you want to do. The reason that we go with these high ratios in these large systems is we're trying to very rapidly build soil above and below the surface at the same time. If you're in an intensively managed situation, if you're going to do a permaculture orchard, And I don't care what Paul says. Straight lines, no problem. That place in British Columbia, Paul would probably have 10 criticisms for every compliment. I think it's gorgeous. And if you watch the video, you will too. It's straight rows. And what they do is they say, well, in this 100 feet, we'll plant maybe not all apples, but all things that will come to harvest at this particular week. So when they go to harvest, they're picking plums and cherries and apples and what have you, but that space has all what they want, and they time it out that way. So you can design anything you want, but the way we determine that is a couple things. What's our end goal? What do we want this to look like when we're done? How much management are we going to put into it during the establishment phase? See, if I do 7 to 1, my management during the establishment phase is make sure it doesn't dry out too much, make sure it's drought-proofed. And don't do anything. And in the fall, chop and drop. And I'll have to do much of anything again. And I might in some climates chop and drop twice in a season. But most likely I'm going to chop and drop once a season. And if I'm trying to do five acres of food forest, how much time can I really spend? How many? How much sheet mulch can I bring in to cover five, an acre, let alone five? Right. But if I'm doing a couple thousand square feet, just from picking up bags of leaves and, and going to a, a store and getting some cardboard, I can sheet mulch the whole thing. Right? And I won't, probably want to use some straw and some other things in there too, but I mean, I can handle the inputs necessary to get that establishment and it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. So the support species to main species ratio is far more about the size of the property and the end goal than any hard rule. Right? Again, Jeff says 9 to 1, but he's doing systems of an acre or more. And mostly in the tropics. I say 7 to 1 because I think 9 to 1 is just more than I need. And I think 7 to 1 is going to blow people's minds anyway. They're going to have a hard time. I think mean, when we plant in the spring, they're going to have a hard time. Um, now, how do we grow grapes on a tree? The orchard I mentioned in British Columbia trains its its vines onto the leguminous tree. Hardy. Strong and can take it. Um I would say you could certainly grow grapes up into an apple tree or something like that. My honest opinion that there are there are plants that do very well in this like vine-tree relationship. I think Maypop, right? Passion flower type things. And, and you know, Maypop's the one that's native in the United States that can handle our cooler climates. Um are are fine for that. I think grapes. You can get into some issues with like, yeah, how do you harvest it? You know, well, if you can harvest the fruit, you can harvest the grape, I guess. But grapes like Sunshine, I think grapes, while they can be done, and and, and they probably have a place if you want to produce a lot of grapes, I think that a good, solid um, vineyard model is not a bad model. But there's always kind of cool things you can do. So I was thinking about putting this vineyard in. Uh, kind of in this really worst part of my property. I've not ruled it out yet, but I was thinking, how do I get posts in the ground there? Because it's like two inches of soil. And then I looked at this long fence that I have, that goes right through that area and all the way to the front. And it's really strong, and it's strong galvanized horse fencing. And has these great big T-post stakes driven into the rock. There's a trellis. You know, so here's kind of my idea. And this is like why I'm considering the area I just kind of ruled out. I think that if you built an open glade surrounded by food forest and put a traditional style vineyard in that glade and then maybe surrounded that vineyard like the show I was ta- I I did a couple weeks ago where Paul Wheaton had a different opinion than I did about how to do this and surrounded that vineyard with hoogles, I think it would be an amazing vineyard. And I, I don't – this is the big thing. I'm not one of these people like all permaculture has to be polyculture to the extreme. I don't have a problem with a typical vineyard. I think they're quite beautiful. I just think that they're, just, they're done without any thought to what else needs to be there. And if I was going to put in, let's say, five acres of vineyard, I would probably end up putting in more like four acres of vineyard, and an acre of land in these different surrounding areas would be all these different polycultures, and Hoogles would be great for that. Uh, I have to admit, I struggle with things like grapes on a tree and I I will say this, that if you wanted to grow them on a tree, you kind of have to plant them further along into the system. And what I mean is that tree might have to be established for two or three or four years before you go ahead and give that grape the opportunity to go up it. Um, but yeah, check out this video in British Columbia that I'll put in today's show notes. Um, here's a hard one and I might end today. I got a bunch more and I'll just do another episode because it's almost at an hour here. Um, Hey, Jack, love to show my question as follows. How, and this is so much like Paul Wheaton and I's question that we handled uh, a, a week ago. Uh, how do I incorporate support species into an existing orchard? More information. I started a standard orchard three years ago with a similar idea, without support species. I start, It started with five trees uh, the first spring, pear, apple, plum, peach, apricot. I put in more trees that fall, and my orchard has now blossomed to 40-plus trees that all grow in my climate, including nut trees, Basically, any tree, any type of food-producing tree. I did not know about permaculture or wooded beds at the time, so the configuration is three rows long, 10 to 15 feet between trees, depending on tree variety and type, semi-dwarf versus dwarf versus standard, and 10 feet between rows. The rows are staggered from each other to allow more space between the trees. Okay. I believe that with pruning, I will have room to plant, to still plant support species into existing rows. I'm not opposed to planting between the rows, but my makeshift watering system is linear, so traditional rows would still be helpful in my situation. I'm unsure of the concept of nitrogen fixers and dynamic accumulators. Any good reference where I could learn more? I've done a Google search but would like you as an expert to point me in the right direction. Also, is is there any species that would both accomplish these goals and also produce secondary use, Uh, such as how I use a mulberry tree uh, to be a distraction for birds when fruit is ripening? Um, let's start there. Okay, so here's what it sounds like. You have this area planted with these fruit trees. You've done a good job of diversity and interrelationships and layout. The the trees are alive and uh, you're in Kansas, so you probably have sufficient rainfall and they're not in danger of any problems with drought. You probably don't need them as, as, as a support species. Now, what you might consider is doing... Kind of back to the vineyard model, what if you took this area and just extended your rows at the long and short end and kind of surrounded it with support trees? That would be one way that you could do that. And then what you're going to do is as you prune your support trees, you'll chop and drop them into kind of this orchard environment. That would be one way, and it's not really hugely necessary, but if you did things that would give you a lot of flowering and bring in more uh, insect life and things like that that could be useful. I, with the model you currently have and irrigation set the way you currently have it, I would consider putting in pasture that supports species-oriented in between your trees. In other words, I would put in things like plantain. I would put in things like clover. Uh, I would put in things like vetch. Uh, these will fix nitrogen. And they'll grow underneath that system and maybe focus more on the herbaceous layer. Um, I'm not a person that's ever going to tell you start cutting all that stuff out. there Because basically, you said, I didn't know about permaculture when I did this, but you did permaculture. And the again, so when we look at this, we're talking about 40 trees laid out in a typical orchard uh, configuration. You don't give me the – okay, the three rows long, 10 to 15 feet between tree, depending on variety – um, and 10 feet between rows. So, it's not a huge area. So, you're, you're doing this much more of a ma- managed orchard model. Um, 10 to 15 feet between trees. So, if you went in and put in a, a support tree, you would be putting it, you know, seven and a half feet. It's too close. So, you can either work with it the way that it is, or if you have a few trees that aren't doing well, you could selectively remove some and put in some supporting species. And, and that wouldn't be a bad idea either. And the other thing you could do is if you're planning on extending this orchard, maybe start putting in some support trees as you extend it. If it works, though, this is what I want people to understand. If what you're doing works, don't worry about it. Relax, don't worry. Have a homebrew or an apple cider. right? So if this is work working that then you're good um it sounds like you're having great results as well from the rest of your email that i'm not going to read so this would be more of let's bring in supporting things on the outskirts and let's focus on herbaceous things that are supporting dynamic accumulators or anything that goes down and pulls nutrient up comfrey now here's a great opportunity here's an amazing opportunity for you that will vastly improve Everything about your orchard. You have 40 trees, get 40 comfrey cuttings and plant a comfrey plant about two feet away, one side or the other from every tree. I'd say if you wanted to, you can do 80. Comfrey the hell out of that place, in your rows. And when the comfrey plant gets too big, just cut it and throw it on the ground. That's a huge dynamic accumulator, huge phosphorus yield, and it's the number one plant in that we know of for spiders to overwinter in so that would be one thing you could just turn the comfrey herbaceous layer into a support species what if now that your trees are up and going you went through every spring and planted one or two or three really great varieties of runner beans around your trees now let them run up your trees they'll fix nitrogen when you harvest them out They'll leave the nitrogen in the soil for the trees, and you'll get another crop. Now, will you have to plant it? Yes, but the irrigation's already there. How long does it take to go around your tree and go boom, 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 and put three beans in? Put four. Two to three will grow and survive. And do different varieties of beans and get them up into your trees. And unlike a grape, we can eventually kind of take over. They die back every year. So now it's a good thing. Scarlet runner would be one example of something that I could think of that would do that well for you, and they'll be they'll love life in there. When you get bigger, healthier trees, how about bringing some annual production? Butternut squash they'll go straight up a tree. You give them a little bit of training, they will go up a tree. They'll go, you have butternuts hanging from your apple trees, right? So, and, and that is bringing more diversity into the situation. So it doesn't always have to be trees. You know, if you go in every, you know, toward the end of summer when a lot of these little annual things are going away and sow some vetch, the vetch will go right up into winter kill. And, and even, you know, it'll, it'll go into your first frost and it'll survive. Um, establishing a pasture of mixed clover and plantain and, and, and things like that in there. All of those things can be, so it doesn't always have to be other trees. So hopefully that helps you understand how to, you know, don't get locked in. When I talk about establishing a food forest, I'm talking about there is no forest. Or there's an old scrubby, you know, pine-based forest that I don't mind cutting down. And I'm going to reestablish something. If you have something that works, there's no reason, no reason to tear it out. Even though that's what these people in British Columbia did. Now, if you said, Jack, I've planted an orchard of apples. It's four varieties of apples in four rows, and they're all the same. And I, I want to turn that into permaculture. Everything I said will work. It would never, never work the way it would work with what you did. You have this huge variety going on already. There's nothing wrong with it. Comfrey. I mean, I'm telling you, if you could find somebody with comfrey, you don't need a lot. To do, like You might think, i got got like 40 plants. now. No, no, no. No, if you can find somebody with a big comfrey plant and you cut a piece of comfrey root with a knife about an inch long and put that in the ground in an area where you're getting here. Ir- I mean, put it close enough where it can get some of that irrigation that you've got going on. That stuff, especially Kansas, that confery will blow up. And, and that alone will bring a lot of diversity into that. Um, I also will be making my presentation on, on, on cover crops. That's going to be given at the event that we're doing this week um, available online uh, after the event. I'll be making that available. So, Uh, that will give you a lot of knowledge about dynamic accumulators, bioaccumulation, and supporting cover crops, both annual and perennials. But hopefully that helps you a lot. And a lot of people are probably in a situation. I planted these 20 trees. They've been in the ground for three years. They're doing good. I don't want to cut them down. I don't care what Paul Wheaton says. Don't cut them down. Work with what you have and don't, don't be sad that you have success even though you didn't do it the way you would have done. It. If it's successful, let it keep going. Now, I've had people say things like, well, I planted these five trees, and I want to put swales in, but I want to make sure I don't have to... Listen, if a tree's been in the ground for a year, and it's somewhere where a swale should be, dig the tree up, put the swale in, and replant the tree. It will survive. The best time to do that would be right about now, when a tree goes dormant. But you can do it. It'll work. It happens all the times. In most nurseries that supply trees, or not most, but a lot of nurseries, especially bare root trees, they grow the tree in the ground. They wait for the tree to grow dormant. They dig the tree up. They prune the roots. They put it in cold storage, and they ship it to you in the spring for you to plant. So if you're going to dig it up and replant it right away, as long as you support it well and do it at a time of year where it's not overstressed, it'll grow. And if you're out, one or if you do five trees like that to get your soils where they belong, and three die, and you're out 90 bucks. it's worth it. What are you spending on the machine to put the swales in? I mean, that's just, you, you, you do have to think that way. But if you got something working, you know, and listen, guys. Let me just put it to you this way. If you live in a climate where you get enough rainfall for trees to grow, uh, or if you live in a place where you can irrigate the area enough to get them through the dry season, and you just start planting as many different kinds of trees as you want and space them out enough so that they can all get some space and put a bunch of diversity in there and put in some herbs and some bushes and some shrubs and some vines. No swales, no hugo culture. you're still going to end up with a food forest. It might look a little more orchard-like, but there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, the next one is uh, from, I don't know, Rick. Um, and some of this is redundant, but I'll go through it quick because these are the, the same questions I get over and over again right after I answer them anyway, so it probably can't hurt. What is the cost of putting in that many support species? As I said, it can be very, very low. These are inexpensive trees, and many times we can propagate them from seed and or cuttings. Okay? If support species and pioneer trees are a huge benefit to a system, why kill them? Why not keep them? Uh, cut down real low well if i keep them cut down real low which is exactly what i'm going to do they die eventually the other trees shade them out and they die they also just kind of if they're not in a situation where they can get a lot of sunlight and they keep using all that solar energy to make nitrogen they're like oh god i got it because it takes a lot of solar energy to make that nitrogen and it like it's just ah oh, i got it yeah okay i'm doing good i got the nitrogen going again yeah all right i'm good Chop, ah, oh, damn, now i got to do this again next year. Eventually, it just wears out, right? And the thing is, it's they are of benefit to the system for establishment. It's not their place to be in the system long-term in large quantities. The only time you see something like locust cover a hill, hillside or mesquite cover a hillside is when man has gone in and disrupted it and not managed the reestablishment. And eventually, it's going to go away anyway. It really will. Sooner or later, they'll choke each other to death, and they'll increase fertility so much that other species will be advantaged, and they will take over. If you look at native forest stands, or any stand of forest more than 50 years old, it's, even if it's never been touched by humans, you never go through and see like just locusts completely dominating it. But yet people end up with them all over a property because they don't manage the tree properly. But what does that tell us? It tells us the tree's purpose is to pioneer right a support this is if support species and pioneer trees okay they they're the same the pioneer species is the support species its purpose is to bring the land forward so that the new settlers can come in and just like a pioneer when the pioneers go out and settle the prairie the once every the settlement comes there'll be a few pioneers around but the vast numbers of them will spread out and died off that's how trees work. So it's a natural process. And again, everything we talked about by killing them, we're just accelerating that process and we're building soil above and below ground to advantage the species that we wanna have. But yes, we're gonna have some around. Uh, next, with a system like this, do you try and plant all the tree shrubs all at once or are you staging them out in stages? It would be ideal to any design that you went in and planted it fully. So if you put in 600 foot of swale, that all of that 600 foot of swale would be planted. It would be ideal. Sometimes it's not in the budget. And renting a piece of equipment to do work is not that expensive. The mini excavator we're renting is costing about $700 for a week. Now, if we rented it for three days, it would cost about $700. So it actually costs the same rent for a week as three days. But... That's a lot of times something people can swallow easier than the budget that it takes to plant a bunch of trees. And even a little excavator like that on good ground can go very, I mean, you can put in, you know, freaking kilometer or more of swale in a week if you just, just hit it. And maybe you can't afford to plant it all at once. At, in that case, what you need to do is very heavily cover crop it and manage it with cover crops until such time as you can afford to plant it. You cannot leave that soil exposed. If you leave that soil exposed, it will go to weeds and it will go to erosion very, very quickly. You need to look at any exposed soil with paranoia. I gotta do something. Um, what you could do though is you could seed it very affordably with a lot of these pioneer trees, and you could bring in your productive trees as the budget allows. So if I was doing it here in Texas, I could seed the hell out of it with Russian olive for next to nothing and prune those out as I as, as my budget allowed me to. But it would be best that once I've disturbed a system that I am going in and balls to the wall planting it. The only reason that we're doing the thing we're doing with this event that we're about to do, where we're going to do the swales, cover crop it, and not plant it with trees until spring is because it's winter. And for those of you coming, I'm going to warn you, when I run an event, it rains. It was Last week, it was 0% chance of rain. (laughs) Today, I think we have, for Friday, we have a 70% chance of rain. It's going to be rainy, it's going to be cold, it's going to be muddy, it's not going to be ideal. But I'm doing this for education. So, if I was not running a workshop, I would have just not rented the equipment this week. I would have rented it next week or the week after. Actually, I would have rented it about three weeks ago and got these cover crops in before it was as far toward winter as it is. But... When you're doing things for educational purposes, sometimes you give up the optimum for the good of the education. So the only reason we're not planting trees into this system right now is it's going into winter. So we're doing the terraforming. We're going to mulch the hell out of it, cover crop the hell out of it. And then in the spring, we'll plant the whole thing in one giant fell swoop. So it would be best to do that. Um, Last one. What is the criteria that is used to determine what support trees are to remain in the system over time where you want them right so you're chopping and dropping chopping and dropping chopping and dropping and this one tree is doing really well and it kind of you look you look around and you're like you know this would be a good place for there to be a large mimosa or a large locust or, or what have you this is this is gonna work this is okay and you let those you just choose. You just choose what you're going to leave. Leave. Um, like I said, I, I look to a ratio of about 1 to 4, but that's because I like that. If you want to do 1 to 6 or 1 to 8, at least something's left. If you want to do 1 to 1 in an orchard environment where everything's pruned every year to certain heights, that's fine. It's, it's really about what you want for the system. And... Again, the the big thing to understand is those support trees are designed to take land that's not ready to grow trees well and make them ready to grow trees fast. If you've got land that will just grow trees, we don't need anywhere near the number of them. In some cases, we don't need any at all. I just don't like to do it without any at all. It's amazing how these questions are just generally variations of each other. So here's uh, Michael from Virginia. Great climate, by the way. You can grow so much in virginia i mean people you know and michael's not but people from virginia often are often like man i wish i could grow too i wish if the northeast wasn't full of crazy people i'd still be living there the climate's so much easier uh to to do things like food forestry than it is in texas honestly um he has a two-acre field that has started to reclaim itself to forest how does one utilize what's there to implement a food forest garden Uh, The plot is mostly covered in locust and red cedar, thick base of years of timothy grass built up underneath. There's also an abundance of albizia. I don't know what that is. Gibalicene available. Oh, silk tree. Very similar to mimosa, okay. Uh, And with the locust will be great companion plants. I want to add dozens of fruit and nut trees into this. But as the companion trees are maybe four to six inches in diameter and 20 years old, what comes down and what stays, assuming I need to cut out the cedars. Uh, you're doing a service beyond what you can know. Thanks, Jack Michael from Virginia. Okay, here's what I would do uh, I would go into that and I would clear enough space to plant whatever you want to plant. I would design it. I would see, so, so there's nothing in there that's a high value tree, right? If you do have a high value tree, like an oak or something like that, or like some cedar toward the edge that's just a kind of a really awesome tree or something that you want to keep, draw, a, just get to print. And draw the things that you just don't want to get rid of. Ignore everything else and design your food forest. Draw your trees in. You know, do it the scale, and if you're going to put them at, you know, 10, 15, 20 feet, whatever foot spacing you're going to do, design it. Okay? Get in there with your saw and cut some access paths so you can get, you might want to bring a piece of equipment in. This might be very hard digging, but something like a bobcat with an auger make it really, really simple. Cut back everything that's in your way. Leave everything that's not in your way. If some of the trees are too much shading out, prune them out, top them off, thin them beyond the space you need to let the light in. Plant your design forest into them and treat the trees that are there like they were your support trees that you planted yourself. Chop and drop, chop and drop, chop and drop, chop and drop. You are the natural component of the system moving the succession forward. As you're constantly going in, and if you have to get up on a ladder and you're chopping and dropping with a pruning saw, I mean like an electric pruning saw, like a sawzall or like a small chainsaw, fine, so be it. The locust is an amazing fuel wood. It's also an amazing tool handle wood, fence post wood. So harvest the locust wood as much as you can. It will take forever to rot. It's it's about 10% or I mean about 80% fungicide in, in black locusts. So what the, the the chop and drop value of a locust is in the thin twigs and leaves and pods. Those are high value. And one of the ways you can help to control your black locust from reproducing with seed folks, you know the pods that they get on there? Chop and drop your locusts before the seeds are mature. So when they're not quite developed yet, when you can feel the the pods and they're like, you know, not quite there yet, they're just, they're forming, they're bulbulous, but they're not going to reproduce yet, cut them then. Chop and drop, chop and chop, drop and drop. This is what you basically have. All your support species are there for you. That's awesome. That's awesome. Your silk tree, same thing. Chop and drop your silk tree. They have a, a bean pod on them, kind of like... Uh, like a locust does, chop and drop them right before they're ready to actually dry out and be mature. And now that puts a huge nitrogen yield to the soil. When you look at a a, a legume, the highest concentration of nitrogen above ground is in the seed, and then the pod, and then the leaf, and then the green stem, and then the wood. Okay? And it's in that, it's a hierarchy of nitrogen. So when you have these really heavily potted legumes and you chop them before they're mature to the ground, those halfway developed seeds are nitrogen fertilizer right onto the surface. And they will break down. Whereas a, you know, if you cut down uh, a, a two-inch thick stick of locust and throw that on the ground, that'll be there in 10 years. So the locust that you have um, really harvest the wood. Anything that's bigger around than your thumb, basically, um, go ahead and pull it out. And use it for firewood. Use it for anything. It's amazing wood. It, it's wonderful wood. And if you can't use it all, um, give some of it away, man. Firewood, firewood, firewood. Um, but that's how I would handle it. I would design it as though it was empty. And I would create the space that I need to fit my design. Um, I wouldn't bother with swales. I, I mean, you might have some areas where you, you know, I don't know your property, where it makes sense. But if all this is growing there natively, and all that root mass is down there already. There's no reason to go to that level of disturbance, most likely. Most likely. Um, if, if you have really dry areas or really dry parts of it, you might have to you know, just take out and disturb and swell some of it. But I would try to just design right into it. And people will say, well, it'll never work. It'll never work. The locusts will always come back. Stupid bioaccumulation. I mean that's I mean it's like sometimes I feel like do people hear themselves you know I mean this might be something that's even worth if you have enough regrowth instead of just rough chop and drop this might be worth renting a big shredder once a year, a big chipper shredder once a year, pull it up, haul it, and just spit it all right back in there my god the 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 opportunity that you have, Michael is immense, and in a climate like Virginia get out of here I mean. Uh, you could have this thing blown and going in five years with that approach. And remember, put in other support species like comfrey or herbaceous species, some blackberries, things like that, into that system. Um, Create these glades. Realize what you're doing. You're creating an environment that's just like the monarch of the tree, the forest tree fell over and an opening formed. And it's all fertile now. And the tree that couldn't grow back when the locust established comes up. You're just accelerating it. Awesome stuff. Have at it. And with that, I've got enough questions for another episode, and I'll try to do part two of this. If you have follow-up questions to this, please send them in. Please do me a favor, though. If you're sure you have a question about food forestry, and you're sure I haven't answered it, listen to 1246 and this show completely end-to-end again. I probably have. I probably have. I don't mind answering more. I don't mind answering them again, but try to drill down to this concept of all we're doing folks is growing trees bushes shrubs and vines um and there's some there's some really good questions i'm very tempted brooke your questions next it'll be the first lead-off question in the next episode in this series i'm biting my tongue to keep from going into it because it's a very very good question brooke and brooke there's only one of you so if you're brooke and you sent a question your question's the one I'm talking about, but Brooke, you're gonna have to wait. Uh, we'll work this in. Probably not next week, but the week after, because next week's gonna be a short week. Quick announcement here. Here's what I got coming up for you this week. Uh, tomorrow will be Stephen Lewis, and Stephen Lewis is uh, a nutritionist uh, and doctor, and uh, is gonna talk to us about health conditions and uh, doing things naturally and, and things like that, and. The, the, then the next day we're going to have uh, Brandon Sheard who is known as the Farmstead Meatsmith so he'll be Thursday's show Friday's show will not be a listener call show this week it will be a live Q&A from Thursday night at our seminar we will be doing a live Q&A with the members of the audience that like we did last time we'll try to do some things to try to make the audio a little bit better this time around for you uh, we do have some audio equipment set up to do that so that'll be Friday's show next week I will be doing a Monday show like always. Monday afternoon, I will be interviewing Chef Keith Snow uh, for the annual Thanksgiving episode. And Wednesday next week, I'll be running the Thanksgiving special that we run every year. Thursday through Sunday, I am shut down next week. That is our Thanksgiving break. In fact, th- honestly, Wednesday, because, you know, the, the special is easy to put out. Um, I'll probably have it done Tuesday evening. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I am my family's. And uh, I will not be fast on text support and response. In fact, I might put up an autoresponder that says, please resend your email Monday if it's really important. Um, I am really trying hard to make sure that I don't let all of this podcasting and food forestry and all this stuff take me too much away from my family. And there's two times a year that I take this complete shutdown mode uh, every year. One is is, is Thanksgiving for a few days, and then the next one's Christmas. From December 24th to January 1st, I pretty much turn into a pumpkin like a Halloween and don't exist and disappear like Cinderella or whatever. Um, and I, I, I tell you that, one, to prepare you for it, but two, to encourage you to do something similar when and as you can. Um, there's a reason I put so much effort into things like food forestry. The question about legacy was very, very important. And I think that, we cannot guarantee that if we all plant food forests, all those food forests will be here in a 100 years, but we can guarantee that if many of us plant food forests, many of them will be here in a 100 years. And that's about your grandchildren and great-grandchildren you'll never know, and that's great, but you probably have kids, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, right now that you need to be building those relationships with, just like we build those polycultural relationships with plants and animals. We need to make sure that we don't lose focus of those relationships with our family and our friends. Um, We are in for some hard times in our future. Food forestry, food storage, all the things that we talk about from self-sufficiency and self-reliance will help us get through those, but relationships are going to be critical as well. The reason we have to do the work we do now with permaculture and reestablish these natural intrinsic relationships and reestablish these ecosystems is because we've taken them down and we've ruined the relationships. We've planted monocrops of corn, 10,000 acres of nothing but corn or wheat or beans. Well, in many ways, that's a symptom of a larger problem in our lives. We've taken our lives down to these very shallow levels of relationship. So every once in a while, realize permaculture is more than just about plants and animals. It's also about care of people. And your people and the people you care about are people. So make sure you're putting people care not just into your designs of your systems, but into your lifestyles as well. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.